first memory I have of a, of a personal, personal enemy was when I was about four or five years old. Uh, my house was near the corner of a, of a neighborhood block, and right next door to me was a small front yard, open kind of field, and there was a giant rock exactly at the corner of two intersecting streets, Gully Road and George Road. No, I wasn't named after the street, and the street wasn't named after me, but I just lived, lived on the street. And so one day I was wandering outside my, by myself, playing by the large rock, climbing up the rock, when, when out of nowhere another boy, a few years older than me, unprovoked, without cause, just punched me in the stomach. I immediately felt the pain, and I started crying, I whimpered back home. And I think that's a good, good picture for the basic definition of an enemy. An enemy is someone who punches you in the stomach for no good reason. And as I grew up and made more friends on my neighborhood block, the, that basic de definition of an enemy became a little bit more complex because there were times when my childhood friends would act like my enemies on certain days. Uh, some of them would steal my toys just because they wanted to. They would team up with another boy, on the, another boy or two on the block and make fun of me or call me names. They could be kind to me on Monday and cruel to me on Tuesday. The first time I got punched in the stomach, I didn't respond. I didn't know what to do. I cried I, and I walked home. But it, too, it didn't take too long before I sinfully learned how to fight back. What my enemies did to me, I would return the favor. When they would steal one of my toys, I would, I would go to their house and steal two of theirs. When they would call me names, I would call them worse names. When they punched me in the stomach, I would punch them in the face. And I remember when my friend, five houses down the street from me, he rode on my, he rode on my front lawn with his bike. Then I got on my bike and I, I sped to his house to do the same to his front lawn. Then he, seen, he saw me and he tried to prevent it. And then I, I, I went back and I tried to kind of protect my lawn. And so for about an hour, we just kind of went like this, riding on each other's front lawns. And as foolish as it sounds, that's how we all to sort of respond to our enemies before God saved us. We, we learn to use the same tactics our enemies used against us, right? We eventually became the same kind of people our enemies were to us. We turned into the same kind of people that we hated. When God saves us, one of the biggest changes he makes in our lives is how we now deal with our enemies. If you're a believer, there should be a, a significant difference in how you treat your enemies compared to the way you used to treat them before. Matthew 43 and through 48, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's kind of right, the normal ethic. You love your neighbors, you hate your enemies. And then Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says here, 
that before you became Christians, you just loved the people who loved you. But that's what everybody does. That's what murderers do. That's what gang members do. They love each other. They hate, they hate their enemies. But now, as a, as a follower of Christ, you are to love those who hate you. But what does that look like? How are we to do something so difficult, almost impossible? Psalm 35 will give us the nuts and bolts of how this loving your enemy thing kind of works. Let me read Psalm 35 for you. David writes this, Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and large shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonor who seek my life. Let those who devise evil against me be turned back and humiliated. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of Yahweh driving them on. Let their, let their ways be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction which he does not know, come upon him, and let the net which he hid catch him, let him fall into it in destruction. And my soul shall rejoice in Yahweh. It shall be joyful in, him, in his salvation. All my bones will say, Yahweh, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up who ask me of things that I do not know. They repay, they repay me evil for good. It is bereavement to my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I walked about as though it were my friend or, or brother. I, I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they were glad and gathered themselves together. They, the, the smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They tore at me and never were silent. Among the godless gestures at a feast, they gnashed at me with their te teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Bring back my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lion's. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among a mighty people. Let those who are, who are wrongfully my enemies not be glad over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously, for they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They opened their mouth wide against me. They said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen it, O Yahweh. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my justice and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them be glad over me. Do not let them say in their heart, aha, our desire. Do not let them say, we have swallowed them up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who are glad at the evil done to me. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnified themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who delight in my righteousness. And let them say continually, Yahweh be magnified who delights in the peace of his slave. And my tongue shall utter your righteousness and your praise all day long. Psalm 35 is an 
imprecatory psalm. And imprecatory psalms are prayers that take matters of injustice to the throne of God. They are not acts of personal vengeance. Psalm 35 and other imprecatory psalms are, are actually very helpful for us. They, they rewire the hardwire of our hearts when it comes to these broken relationships that we've had in the past. They are very practical for our spiritual and emotional lives. They teach us how broken hearts heal. And, and we need this psalm, and we need these kind of psalms because you will, deep, you will be deeply hurt by other sinners in your life, inside the church and outside the church. You and I know many people who have experienced, who are experiencing in the present deep pain over personal conflict from the past. There's nothing like the pain of a broken relationship. And these sorts of battles can leave long-lasting bruises and scars inside of us. They can leave internal wounds that don't seem to heal. We know dear friends who seek counseling and good for them to help them overcome the vicious attacks of enemies who used to be their friends. And what Psalm 35 and others like this psalm emphasize over and over is that the deep wounds of our hearts are not so much the result of what our enemies do to us, they are self-inflicted. The scars of our souls are actually the result of how we respond to our enemies. And so the most important thing when our enemies come after us isn't what they do to us, it is how we respond to them that makes the difference in the spiritual and emotional welfare of our hearts and souls. We have zero control of, over what our enemies do to us, but we can control how we respond to our enemies. And so Psalm 35 will give us spiritual knowledge on how to overcome and defeat our enemies God's way. Psalm 35 is written in a chiastic structure, so that's how I'm going to organize and teach the psalm. And we will look at five ways to defeat our enemies God's way. Let me get the clicker real quick. All right. So the first point, found in verses 1 and 3 and verses 27 and 28, and they, they, they kind of parallel each other, and there's, there's one point, and it kind of forms kind of the, it's a sandwich where the meat is in the middle. The chiasm is, the, the main point is, is right in the middle, and so the emphasis is there. And so uh, the, 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 cor the outer verses correspond to each other, and so that's how I'm going to teach it. And the first point is this, let God fight your battles. How do we defeat our enemies God's way? Let God fight our, uh, our battles. In verses 1 through 3, David asks God to fight his enemies. That makes sense, right? Um, if I saw a big guy, you know, with a bulging muscles, and he had a sharp sword, and he was running after me, um, and I had three bodyguards, I was kind of a, a rich guy, and a a, a famous person, and, and my three bodyguards had even bigger muscles and an even, an even sharper sword. 
The last thing I would do is kind of push them aside and say, don't worry, I got this. What kind of fool would do that? Well, us, Christians, actually, we engage in, in this kind of uh, foolishness all the time when it comes to the way we handle our enemies. We have the most powerful being on our side, and we, we, we routinely tell God through our choice and his, choices and actions, God, creator of the universe, the one who destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, I don't need your help. I can handle that. And when we act this way, it's simply because we do not know God's nature and character very well, but not for David. David, uh, as great a warrior as he was, as large and formidable an army David had access to, David calls on the Lord because he knew who God was from Scripture. He knew that God was, a, was an even more powerful warrior than he was. He understood that God had an even greater army than he had. Look at, look at verse 10. He says, All my bones will say, Yahweh, who is like you? He sang that in the first song. That's a quote from Exodus 15 when God, after he had decimated Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea, Moses and Israel, they're praising God for their deliverance. And they, this is what they sing in Exodus 15, 9 through 12. The enemy said, I will praise, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be fulfilled against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will dispossess them. And then Moses says in response to the enemy's statement, well, God, you blew, your, you blew with your wind. This, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in my praises, working wonders? You, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Enemies surrounded David, and his mind and, and his heart immediately goes to the book of Exodus. He remembers the story of this ragtag group of Israelite sheep farmers pitted against Pharaoh and the most powerful empire in the world. And he remembered the power of God in the ten plagues. He remembered the, the Red Sea drowning of, of, of all of Pharaoh's army. And then David said this to himself, that same God who defeated Pharaoh is my God. Do you know the warrior God of Exodus? You know that he is a fighter for his people, that he is a general for his, his chosen people. One commentator said this, Yahweh is no celestial marshmallow. He is no mere psychological pacifier, but a warrior who plunges into combat for his servants. You see, when people choose to fight against you, you can smile because they are picking a fight with God himself. Do you know this God? Do you know him personally? Do you know him deeply? Do you know him savingly? Do you know him through Christ? God's protection is complete protection. Look at verse 2. He says, take hold of shield and large shield. Two kinds of shield, a small shield and a body shield. Uh, the, the, the idea is complete protection. How do I put on this armor, though? How do I put it on? How do I... How do I how do I gain this protection from God, this divine kind of armor? You open your Bible and you read. Because every time you open the Word of God and read, God says this to your soul. Verse 3, David says, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. 
Every time you open Scripture, this is the, 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 the power that you receive. God, in, in some way or in some form, He says to you, I am your salvation. So when you're, when you're afraid, read the Word. When, when that doesn't work, read the Word more. When that doesn't work, memorize Scripture. Memorize a psalm. When that doesn't work, memorize two psalms. When that doesn't work, memorize ten psalms. Because sooner or later, I guarantee, the Word will penetrate your hardened, fickle heart, and God will say to your soul with unmatched power and security, I am your salvation. Charles Spurgeon said this, Besides holding off the enemy, the Lord can also calm the mind of his servant by express assurance from his own mouth that he is and shall be safe under the almighty wing. An inward persuasion of security in God is of all things the most precious in the furnace of persecution. One word from the Lord quiets all our fears. David praises God for his victory in, in, in verses 27 and 28. He says, let them shout for joy and be glad who delight in my righteousness. And let them say continually, Yahweh is magnified, who delights in the peace of his slave. And my tongue shall utter your righteousness and your praise all day long. God will fight for you and he will win in the end. Your final outcome is guaranteed by the word of God. It is guaranteed by the power of God and by the grace of God. And in verse 27, the assumption is that Yahweh will answer his prayer in the end. And so in light of that, that end chapter of time and that final victory for God's people, David calls all of God's people to celebrate the greatness of Yahweh. He says in verse 27, let all God's people rejoice in my righteousness. This righteousness is referring to David's worldview. It's a reference to David's moral standard, and therefore it is a righteousness according to God's word. David's righteousness is God's righteousness. Look at verse 28. 28. My tongue shall utter your righteousness. D delight in my righteousness, and, and my tongue shall utter your righteousness. Living out God's standards should be the norm for us. Don't be ashamed of what God says in his word. Don't be silent about those standards. Proclaim them. Shout for joy. Delight in David, David's righteousness. Delight in God's righteousness. Yes, it will bring external trouble to your life. But look what verse 27 says. When we exclaim God's righteousness, when we proclaim God's righteousness, when we're not ashamed of God's righteousness, he delights in the peace of his slave. He gives us peace, inner peace. And the word for peace is shalom. Shalom is what every sinner wants and chases after, but it can only be found in Christ. Shalom means uh, peace, well-being, wholeness. It can have a focus on inward security and safety. It's a security and safety that brings with it feelings of satisfaction, well-being, and contentment. You will ex experience external trouble for proclaiming God's righteousness from his word, but in exchange he gives us peace with inside, inside of us. And so we move from a plea and praise in our first chiastic parallel to the next one where David now concentrates 
on justice for the wicked in verses 4 through 8 and 19 through 26. Number one, we defeat our enemies by letting God fight our battles. And number two, we overcome our enemies God's way by letting God be our judge, letting him be the final arbiter of justice. Psalm 35 is... Psalm 35 is couched in legal courtroom language, especially in verses 4 through 8 and 19 through 26. In these two, uh, two sections of Scripture, they are two sets of imprecations. In verses 4 through 8, David articulates what he wants to happen to his enemies. In 19 through 26, David lists what he does not want his enemies to accomplish. Notice how in verse 4, just to kind of point out the structure to you, four of the words used in this first verse of the first set of imprecation, let's read verse 4, let those be ashamed and dishonor who seek my life, let those who devise evil against me turn back and humiliated, four of those words are found in verse 26, the last verse of the second set of imprecations. Go to verse 26. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who are glad at the evil done to me. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who, who magnify themselves over me. It confirms the chiastic structure. This is the right way to kind of look at this text. And David's imprecations in, in verses 4 through 8 and 19 through 26 are prayers for future and final justice when Christ returns. David understands that true justice can never find its full and adequate expression here and now. Every sin that is committed against you today has an eternal ramification. So David prays for final end-time justice. In other words, we are never to seek personal vengeance. In the imprecatory psalms, personal vengeance is never the aim. Final, eternal justice is. Listen to Romans 12, 17 through 19. Paul says, Never pain back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. This is this end-time eschatological wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This happens at the end of the story, though. And so, yes, we are to pray for our enemy's salvation. If they happen to be Christians who are beside themselves, like we often are, we are to pray for their sanctification. But we can also pray, according to this psalm, for justice to play out in the end. We can pray for somebody's salvation. We can pray for their sanctification and spiritual growth. But we can also pray for final justice for unbelievers, for the unregenerate who never repent, who never believe in Christ, provided that certain conditions are met. And we'll see some of the, more of these conditions in the psalm. The first condition is found in verse 4, and it's this. The eternal penalty has to fit the crime. The crime can't be a petty one where the fault or the offense lies more in your bad attitude or your prickly uh, personality or some bitterness that is, that is in your heart than it is in the severity of the crime. In verse 4, what are they trying to do? Look at verse 4. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. David's enemies want to take his life away. They want to kill him. 
So you, you don't want to pray an imprecatory prayer on the highway when somebody cuts you off, right? That's my grandmother you're honking at. But when the shooter in Nashville entered the, the Covenant School a few months ago, and when she killed three children and three, three adults, we can pray that she receives perfect end-time justice. It's too late for mercy because she was shot and killed by the officers. She never got that opportunity. So in that kind of tragedy, we can pray and find comfort in end-time justice. You see, even if she lived and, and went to jail for the rest of her life, it would never make up for the lives that she took. Even her death isn't enough. One life for six? That's not justice. See, only on Judgment Day, in the end, can a divine courtroom decision by an eternal God accomplish perfect justice. In the end, the roles will be reversed. In the end, the shame and the dishonor and the disrespect the world heaps on believers, it'll be given to them. Look at verse 4. Let those be ashamed and dishonored. What happens to us in this life will happen to them in the next life. Look at verse 26. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. The shame is an end-time shame. Zechariah 13.4 says of, uh, of false prophets that when Jesus returns, quote, and it will be in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision. This is end-time shame. This is final eschatological dishonor. There's a total reversal of fortunes when Jesus returns. Verse 5, David says, let them be like chaff before the wind. Do you remember that phrase, chaff before the wind? You saw it in Psalm 1. Go to Psalm 1, and and Psalm 1 says, this is the destiny of the, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous meditate on the law day and night. Verse 4, Psalm 1, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment. This is end-time humiliation. This is end-time chaff being blown away before the wind. And their judge will be the angel of Yahweh. Look at verse 5. With the angel of Yahweh driving them on. Verse 6. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. This is the same angel who, of Yahweh who delivered Israel in Egypt. Here David speaks of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ being the end-time judge. Out of the entire book of Psalms, only in Psalm 35 and Psalm 34 is this angel of Yahweh being referred to. And so like he was in Psalm 34, David in Psalm 35 is enraptured with visions of a past exodus and a future exodus. Jesus will be their judge. Jesus will be their judge. But this begs the question, why do our, why do our enemies in the world hate us so much? Why are they trying to kill us? Why did that shooter 
go into an elementary school and shoot up a bunch of kids. Verse 7 says, no good reason. No good reason. Look at verse 7. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. Look at verse 19. Don't let those who hate me without cause. There's no good reason for this. There's no legitimate reason. There's no justifiable reason that that Nashville shooter had in killing those kids. And speaking the truth in love is not a good or legitimate reason to hate and harm believers. That's not a good reason, in spite of what our sinful culture might say. If, we, if you remember from a few months ago, much of the media after the, the shooty, shooting seemed to imply that the shooter's crimes were somehow warranted by the speech and actions of believers. Three days after the shooting, the White House publicly declared a proclamation on Transgender Day of Visibility. Like that was our fault. David says, no. David says, no. There's no good reason for this. No justifiable, legitimate reason. People will hate you when you open up your mouth for Jesus. People will hate you when you tell them, this is the standard, and you fall short. People will hate you when you say, this, these actions are sinful, and they will act accordingly. But it's not a good reason for them to do what they do to us. It's not a legitimate reason because, listen, every word that we communicate from Scripture is always good, it's always pure, it's always right, it's always life-giving, it is true, it is just, it is loving, it is beautiful, it is pure. There is never a good reason when those lost in a desert try to kill us for trying to give them water. Listen to me, listen to me. If there are words in your heart and the words are in accord with the word of God, never hold them back. Never be silent. Always say what's in your heart if it comes from God's word. Don't let the fear of rejection or hatred or animosity keep you from saying those words in, their, in your heart because the response they might have against you is without cause, David says. The response is irrational. The response comes out of spiritual blindness and moral insanity. And the violence perpetrated against you, it will be turned around on them on that day. Verse 18, verse 8, let destruction which, which he does not know come upon him, and let the net which he hid catch him. Let him fall into it in dis destruction. The, 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 the pit... The hole they dug for you, they will fall in in the end. So do not be afraid of their plots and their plans. Do not be afraid to speak the truth. Every wedding I, I, I preach at, there are people at the, at the rehearsal dinner, and they're just so nice to me, and they're so kind. And, and then after the wedding, after the sermon, the same people pretend I don't even, even exist. They give me this cold shoulder and they say, I can't believe you said that. And it doesn't bother me. Because I know the words weren't mine. They, they, they just came from here. I'm just the messenger. You don't got a problem with me. 
I'm not the source. I, I didn't write Ephesians 5. I just said what the Bible said. I just said what Titus 2 said. I just said what's in my heart and what I believe to be true from God's holy word. So if I'm wrong, show me from the Bible and I'll take back what I said. See, in the first set of imprecations in 4 through 8, David calls on the Lord to put God's enemies to shame and to dishonor in the end. In the second set of parallel imprecations in verses 19 through 26, David calls on the, on the Lord to keep his enemies from attaining victory over him. Look at verse 19 and 20. Let those who are wrongfully my enemies not be glad over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. He says, in verse 20, they do not speak peace. They devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. We're, Christians are quiet people. We live quiet lives. We're quiet in the land. We're not trying to start a revolution. We're, we're just being faithful. You just got to be faithful. But even when you're faithful, there will be people who, according to verse 21, they will, they will react accordingly in verse 21. They will say, they will open their mouths wide against you and say, aha, aha, our, our eyes have seen it. They're looking for you to make a mistake, right? They're looking for you to stumble. One fault, one, one little wrong thing. They're ready to pounce like animals. Charles Spurgeon says that they are, quote, glad to find out a fault of misfortune or to swear they had seen evil where, where there was none. Spurgeon says, Malice has but one eye. It is blind to all virtue in its enemy. Eyes can generally see what hearts wish. A man with a mote in his eye sees a spot in the sun. How like a man is to an ass when he brays over another's misfortune. How like a devil when he la laughs a hyena laugh or a, over a good man slips. Have you ever been the object of a conspiracy, of an of a, of a, of a office conspiracy against you, a team of people working against you? They just want to see your downfall? I had two managers who when they found out I was a Christian, they would go into my spreadsheet of numbers, they would change the numbers, and they would tell my manager, look, he's making all these mistakes. And so I would screenshot my numbers, and I would have to show them, look, this is what it was, this is what it, this is, what it is now. Sometimes they make up stuff. But this is the comfort, verse 22. You have seen it. You have seen it, O Yahweh. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my justice and to my cause, my God and my Lord. David says my justice and my cause in verse 23. It's, this is God's cause. It is God's justice. That's why David appeals to God's righteousness and judgment in verse 24. Verse 24, judge me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness. And do not let them be glad over me. David's prayer of imprecation comes from a Davidic king advancing God's kingdom plan. None of this is personal for him. David's enemies hate him because he's living for God. 
They hate him because he's advancing God's agenda, not his own. David is in a cosmic spiritual war against the forces of darkness, and he knows it. And so he appeals to eternal divine justice. When you've died to yourself, nobody can hurt you because you're not alive anymore. When you're living by faith in the Son of God, attacks against you have no target because you've already been crucified with Christ. And every pursuit of justice you now participate in is viewed in light of the the big picture of God's salvation plan. When you're consumed with God's glory, personal setbacks, they don't scare you. The only loss you're concerned about is if the loss somehow gets in the way of God's purposes and goals. When David prays for his enemies not to have victory in these verses, it is a prayer they don't have victory over God. God, don't let them magnify themselves over me as king of Israel and forefather of the Messiah. Don't let them get in the way of me as receiver and advancer of the Davidic covenant. Don't let them stop your plan to send your son to die for my sins. Father, don't let them get in the way of the church's mission. Don't let them get in the way of the church's agenda to advance the gospel. This is the attitude. This is the response. So how do we overcome our enemies God's way? Number one, we let God fight our battles. Number two, we let God be our judge. And number three, we worship God against all odds. We worship God against all the odds. I, like many of you, I usually root for the underdog. You know, I'm getting older. When I see some sports guy my age, I'm like, yeah, you can do this. Do they ever win? Hardly ever. You know, the tennis, the old tennis champion, he might, he might have a, he might upset this new rising young, young stallion in the quarterfinals, but guess what? He loses in the semifinals. And this is what many of us have a hard time accepting. Christians are the underdogs. We're the underdogs. We'll always be the underdogs in this world. We'll always be in the minority. We will always be on the other side of political power. In verse 10, look at what David says. All my bones will say, Yahweh, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him. In this life, when we fight God's way, our our enemies from an earthly perspective will always be too strong for us. Get used to it. David's own human resources are no match for the adversity he is facing. Verse 10, we are the afflicted. We are the needy who is, who is, who, 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 where people rob us of our livelihood. They, they, they will strip away our honor. They will take away our freedoms, our basic rights as image bearers. When it comes to human measures, the saints of the world will always be outmatched and outnumbered, and so we need to get used to it. We're the underdogs. And this is hard for us to accept because before God saved us, we knew how to fight the world's way, right? And we were pretty good at it. And we won a lot of the time. And sometimes we, we still fight like the way we used to. And what is the result? Deep down, we know it's just not the same anymore, right? 
Instead of feeling satisfied after you won, you feel guilty instead. Instead of moving on indifferent to the carnage you've brought about, now there's doubt, there's confusion, there's sorrow. To others, it may seem like you won, but inside you know you've lost. Inside your heart, you know you've dishonored God, you've failed Him, you've broken His law. You put shame on the gospel. Verse 9 and 10 lets us know there's a better way that the underdog can rejoice. We can rejoice. Verse 9, my soul shall rejoice in Yahweh. It shall be, be joyful in his salvation. All my bones will say, that's another way of saying your whole being. I know that's kind of strange. But every part of your person, your body will rejoice. And what will all your bones say? Yahweh who is like you. Again, I, as I said earlier, this is a, a statement after um, this, uh, uh, David is quoting Moses after God killed Pharaoh and his armies. And David is saying, don't worry, one day the sea is going to divide in two. One day you were going to walk on dry ground and, the, and, the, and the, the sea walls will come crashing down on your enemies. You can rejoice looking forward to that day. But in the meantime, verse 17, it'll feel like forever. Lord, how long will you look on? How long will it feel like you don't care, like you're sitting on the sidelines? God, look at me. Look at, I'm suffering. I'm alone. I'm outmatched. I'm outnumbered. It seems like you don't care. David says, no, you can rejoice of the certainty of this final justice that will happen. Verse 18, I will give thanks to you. Verse 17, bring back my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give thanks to you in the great assembly. I will praise you among a, a mighty people. So today, it feels like we're being ripped apart by lions, but we will go from the carnage of lions to a great assembly and a mighty people in verse 18 when Christ returns. Go to Matthew, go to Matthew, and Jesus kind of reaffirms all that I've been talking about and all, this, this, uh, all that Psalm 35 has been speaking of. And Jesus, uh, there's a contrast between the present now and the future when Christ returns. Look at Matthew 5, 3. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's coming in the future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's in the future. We mourn now, but we can be blessed. We can be rejoiced because of the end. Verse 5, blessed are the lonely, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God in the end. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Blessed are those for who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's, it's this 
It's the same lot the prophets had. It's the same lot that David had. How do we do beat our God's enemy? Number four, be sober-minded about the reality of the evil, verses 11 and 12 and verses 15 and 16. We, we don't want to be surprised when sinners hurt us deeply. We want to even expect it. We want to be surprised even if it never happens to you. Because if you take a stand for righteousness, if you take a stand on God's word, people who were once your friends yesterday will stab you in the back tomorrow. And when it happens, it will hurt. Look at verse 11 and 12. Malicious, malicious witnesses rise up who ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. It is bereavement to my soul. It hurts so much. And when you fall, they will be glad. Look at verse 15 and 16. But at my stumbling, they were glad and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered against me. They tore at me and never were silent among the godless jesters at a feast. They were like jesters at a feast celebrating my fall, my, 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 my stumbling, my destruction. One moment, Saul was David's best friend. The next moment, Saul was throwing spears at him. One moment, Absalom was, Absalom was David's beloved son. The next, Absalom had taken his throne, taken his kingdom, sleeping with his wives in, in front of all of Jerusalem. You see, part of the lingering pain that comes from conflict is the result of an illusion that you had that these kind of things could never happen to you. And therefore, it seems unreal. It seems unbelievable to the degree it feels unnatural. And you, and, and, you, and you can't put it in a familiar category. And because you can't form this category, you're not able to process the pain very well. But this psalm creates that category for you in order for you to process the sorrow well and healthy. See, evil by others can happen to you. Great evil can be perpetrated by others you've trusted in the past. Be ready for the day when your friends become enemies and hurt and betray you. You want to have this category in your heart, and then you want to have an action plan in your heart to respond God's way when it happens. Don't let your enemies take you by surprise. Don't be in shock when it happens. When it happens to you, say, well, this is what Psalm 35 said was going to happen. And I'm ready. I'm, re I'm ready to respond God's way. How do we fight our enemies God's way? Well, now we get to the center of the, the chiasm. This is what Davis, David wants us to focus on. This is what he wants us to emphasize. This is the meat in the middle. I tried to make it like a hamburger, like a, on the brown is the, 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 the bread. The, there's the green, the lettuce, tomato, the cheese, right? And the meat in the middle is this. We conquer our enemies with love. Look at verse 13 and 14. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and prayer kept returning to my bosom. I walked about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. David's enemies hated him, but David loved his enemies. They pounced on him when he stumbled, but, but David mourned for them like it was own, his own brother. He treated them like it was his own mother. He fasted for his wealth, their welfare. 
Verse 13, prayer kept returning to my bosom. That, that could mean that, that David's prayer for his enemies, it kept coming back to his memory. He kept praying for them again and again. As evil as, his, as de- David's enemies were, he was the opposite. And he's the, he's the same way. He has the same heart of love. He, he keeps praying for them again and again. See, when our enemies curse us, we bless them. When they try to take away our lives, we try to protect theirs. When they shout at us, we whisper back. When they laugh at our calamity, we weep for theirs. When they plot our demise, we plan ways to help them succeed. When they slam the door in our face, we welcome them into our homes. When they ignore us, we greet them. When they pretend we don't exist, we make sure they feel like they're the only person in the world. When they wish the worst on us, we pray for their best. When they take away from us, we give to them. See, this psalm helps us understand the imprecatory prayers of the psalms. The the way we respond to our enemies is a lot more complex and nuanced than we think. You see, when David prayed for justice for his enemies, he was at the same time full of love for them. Because justice for David was motivated by God's glory. And this glory freed his heart. It gave him freedom to love his enemies because it was never personal for David. These kind of prayers are are never motivated by personal revenge or sinful anger. So yes, we can pray these kind of prayers for our enemies, but only when there's genuine love for them. Only when you care about God's glory more than your own personal welfare can you pray for end-time justice. Loving your enemies is the best way to defeat them. Now, generally speaking, the, con- the content of Psalm 35 is a paradigm for how all of God's people should respond to their enemies. But David is specifically writing about the way God's kings must respond to God's enemies. He is writing as a Davidic king to other Davidic kings. In other words, David's experience in Psalm 35 finds ultimate expression and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the ultimate king the Messiah of Israel. Yes, David loved and cared for those who betrayed him, but no one more thoroughly loved and cared for those who betrayed him than Jesus. Remember the last night? He knows Judas is about to betray him. Jesus washes his feet. He's going to the cross because of Jerusalem, and as he goes to the cross, he weeps for Jerusalem. Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 35. The enemies of our Lord conspired against him. They betrayed him. They held a mock trial with evil judges, false charges, an unjust verdict. They spit on his face. They scourged him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They put spikes through his hands and his feet. Even his friends deserted him. He was all alone on the cross, all alone on the cross. And you know what? After all of that, Jesus' heart remained the same. There was no internal scarring he had to struggle with. There was no guilt. There was no depression. There were no emotional burdens and baggage in his heart. He didn't have to see a counselor. He didn't need medication. Why? Why? Because 
in the receiving of the fullness of evil against him, Jesus never responded to his enemies with sin. See, the scars of our hearts from the past that don't seem to heal, they are self-inflicted. Because yes, your enemies can take away your life, but they can never damage your heart if you respond to their hatred God's way. Jesus responded to his enemies Jesus responded to his enemies God's way. He left his father to be his warrior. He trusted the father to be the final arbiter of justice. He worshiped God on the cross against all odds. Evil never surprised him. Jesus knew what was coming. But most of all, Jesus loved his enemies. On the cross, as they were mocking him, Jesus looked out at all those who had put him there, and this is what he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And listen to me. By doing this, Jesus was saving those who would believe in him while also saving his own soul. See, the best way to protect your heart from the attacks of your enemies is to love them. The best way to heal your heart from the painful scars of past personal wars is by loving them. So we need to let go of the bitterness every day. Let it go. Turn away from sinful anger every hour. It is a process, I know this. And we start today and then we keep going. We keep giving our enemies over to God. We keep forgiving the same people who have hurt us deeply for the same offense. We keep doing that from the inside out until you're positive you have really forgiven them. Love your enemies with all your heart. Love your enemies with all of your heart. That's the best way to... It's the best way to protect yourself. It's the best way to defeat them. When your enemies punch you in the stomach for no reason, give them a hug and tell them you love them in Jesus' name. 